everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni, and this is the FDI podcast. The European Union and Japan officially agreed on a trade deal on July 6, thus creating the world's largest open economic area, covering about a third of the global economy and more than 600 million people. The deal eliminates most of the existing tariffs on goods and services flowing between the European Union and Japan, and also lifts some of the non-tariff barriers that somewhat limited mutual trade and particularly investment. It also comes at a time when global trade has lost the typical leadership of the United States, giving the European Union and Japan a chance to fill the void left by the White House in continuing, in continuing trade and investment liberalization across the globe and thus counter a mounting wave of protectionism. I'm here in our studio in London with Elitsa Garnisova, a researcher at the London School of Economics, work as some insightful research into the potential impact of the EU-Japan EPA on trade and investment. So, Elitsa, obviously the, 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 the treaty has yet to be fully ratified by European Union countries and obviously also Japan, uh, but assuming that it comes into force uh, in uh, 2019 as expected, how do you see trade and investment uh, develop between the two uh, blocks uh, with this uh, treaty? So first of all, as you, I think you touched upon the main points in terms of this is one of the largest agreements that has been signed yet by two parties. And I would definitely point out to three areas where the agreement is both very important for, for investment confidence, but also for development of future relations between the two countries. Um, the three areas are definitely tariffs. Um, regulatory uh, regulatory issues and um, a general improvement in the business environment. Um, on the tariffs front, as you said, on day one, 90% of tariffs on uh, trade on trade in goods uh, will be will be eliminated, which is uh, a remarkable, remarkable achievement. And even though Japan is already famous for its um, low tariffs on industrial goods, when it comes to areas that are of special interest of European exporters and a lot of offensive interests, um, this would be extremely beneficial. So, of course, tariffs is definitely the for the first point to point out to. Like, for example, textile and these sectors where European Union company, European companies, yeah. are a big. Uh of course, and uh, letter goods where there has been an informal sort of informal restrictions within now uh, within the Japanese market. So this is a big growth area. Also chemicals and um, a, a lot of the a lot of the agricultural goods that received reductions through TRQs and other tariff reductions. So um, so this is of course the main point. And of course, um, in order for this to qualify under WTO as a as a trade agreement, it has to. Um, liberalize substantially all trade. Um, the second point that you also mentioned is actually more important and does link a lot to the research that we do, which is regulatory issues. And of course, nowadays, we hear a lot about non-tariff measures and how important they are. But also in the case of Japan, given that it's already such a developed economy, that it has very low barriers to investment and low um, low tariffs, actually non-tariff barriers were the most important area on, on which to the EU to crack on. And the EU did, I think, an amazing job in getting to um, getting to discuss with, with Japan and put forward these, in the end of the day, the partnership is about creating a forum to discuss this regulatory issue. So there are a few dimensions of that. So there is, of course, the horizontal, um, the horizontal provisions, but there are also very in-depth sectoral annexes for motor vehicles, for textiles that you mentioned, avoiding uh, duplicate labeling, um, also for medical devices. 
uh, and financial services. Um, and even more interesting, of course, there is the joint body um, for cooperation and for discussion of future cooperation between the EU and Japan, where the idea is to actually avoid uh, future as much as possible to uh, to avoid future barriers, which is one of the most important things nowadays. Really. Right. So this is an interesting point because uh, often Japan is perceived uh, by Western investors as a difficult place to do business in, despite uh, a very favorable uh, business environment, at least on paper, like very few uh, restrictions to trade, very few restrictions to investment. But again, there are non non uh, tariff barriers or soft barriers that are are perceived as a hurdle to to trade and investment. So, do you want to give us a few examples of of a few a few a few measures and the fields where they try to address non tariff barriers, which could uh, potentially uh, facilitate uh, trade and investment from the European Union? Um, yeah, so um, in terms of the annexes that um, the EU worked on the most, it's actually sort of a combination between unilateral action on the Japanese side, which was very important to show trust between two partners. That's quite important nowadays. Everybody talks about trust. Um, and the Japanese, in that sense, showed a lot of um, a lot of um, commitment to uh, to. Uh, to reduce um, different types of barriers. So motor vehicles, they adopted um, uh, adopted the UNS UNEC standards. Uh, so avoiding a lot of uh, a lot of uh, duplicate duplicate testing. Uh, and moving towards mutual recognitions of standards, uh, there is a lot in the in terms of the textile sector duplicate um, remove. So um, products in Japan had to be relabeled for the Japanese market. This is this is to be removed. Uh, there is also sort of mostly on the unilateral side in terms of medical devices. Um, Japan took um, a lot of steps in order to get into uh, to make a reform of its um, internal market in terms of pharmaceuticals in order to in order to avoid very sort of um, very complex bureaucratic procedures and high costs for for European exporters and pharmaceuticals is a huge market for um, of course nowadays for uh, for European exporters so these are just some of the examples but also we have um, in the field of services even Japan Post uh, some steps in order to uh, reduce the, the monopoly of Japan Post in in the country but also on government procurement there is now um, access to trading with um, or providing services to cities in Japan so these are all it used to be sort of a no-go for for European exporters um, and creates a lot of trust between the between the two partners right. obviously it's a the, the, the treaty is gonna work both ways so uh, there will be a lot of like also investment and trade from Japan will be yeah. facilitated into European Union will be facilitated we'll get to that in a in a in a minute but uh, I wanted also to talk about like its potential impact on uh, not just trade on, on investment. I think that in a way this treaty is particular because it doesn't really open a market that was re- was already open, but in a way it makes it more uh, eliminates or reduces uh, business costs related to doing business in Japan, which is again not just perceived as a difficult uh, sometimes could be perceived as a difficult place to do business in, but also. A very uh, competitive and uh, tough market in a way. It's a, a, an expensive market. It's a place where uh, profit margins not necessarily 
are uh, are that high as uh, other Asian countries. Uh, so in a way, this this deal probably makes, uh, as you were mentioning, like e retail kind of reduces business costs related to labeling, for example, or in other sectors. So probably creates more, uh, it reduces business costs. So and uh, so by doing so, increases uh, profit margins for. Uh, uh, foreign trade partners and thus makes it a more appealing uh, uh, market. Talking about the potential impact on investment uh, from the economic partnership agreement uh, between the European Union and Japan, I spoke with uh, Mr. Ozuk Lee Makiyama, the director of the European Center for International Political Economy, and this is what he told me. I think that there is a difference in objective between Europe and Japan because Europe is desperate for foreign investment. And it is actually quite underperforming in terms of uh, investment overall, uh, domestic or foreign. And this is one of the underlying problems of the European economy that is quite structural. Actually, the structural problem for Japan is the opposite, uh, meaning that uh, Japan is over-liquid. It's one of the most liquid, well, it is the most liquid market in the world. And they have a surplus of capital. And now you would ask yourself, if you're on the Japanese market, and you have a surplus of capital, which for a number of years that has been practically free, why would you go overseas to get money? And that's a fundamental problem for Japan. And one of the things that the, the, the current administration in Japan and the Prime Minister Abe are trying to do is that despite this, despite this uphill for foreign direct investment, they need to actually... Um, they need to actually attract FDI simply for the fact that they need more competitive market. They need, they want more competition. And with that, of course, comes a number of competitiveness factors that if you attract for a competition, you may be able to, for example, improve uh, consumer welfare. Uh, you may bring some dynamics back to the Japanese market. Another important factor that you can actually see, for example, in certain sectors, for example, in life sciences, is that they want to bring more innovative drugs and medical devices, as well as hopefully through competitive pressure, bring the cost down in elderly care and in the aging society and also find new solutions for yeah, rare diseases and so forth. So there are a number of factors that for the Japanese side, it's not just about attracting capital. It's it's actually secondary. To, attracting capital is um, is a way to actually reach another uh, uh, objective. So in a way, uh, it's it's been very clear. So they they are not after capital per se, but uh, they want. Uh, Western capital, Western companies uh, active in the local market to 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 take the market to the to to a more to the next level, to a more sophisticated stage, to a more competitive stage, and therefore eventually also increase uh, uh, the welfare of the consumers. Yeah, no, I completely agree with Hosok that in terms of the importance of uh, the economic partnership agreements is to an extent um, quite different uh, to some extent for the Japanese side and for the European side because Europe really needs growth and jobs and it's still trying to push for some of those structural reforms that are actually underway in Japan right now. Well, for Japan is really part of the apenomics um, program um, and how it would sort of shape in the next few years. Uh, and 
the economic partnership agreement is a key key point of that because it does uh, does include business environment substantially in terms of uh, promoting also in terms of just thinking about the even the academic studies on the topic in how trade liberalization then brings with it further uh, foreign direct investment uh, and it improves um, improves business confidence so really as you said promoting um, investment in the long term uh, which would be really important for both Japan and the EU. On the other hand, what can we expect uh, uh, for uh, investment, Japanese investment into the European Union? Japanese uh, companies are already major investors uh, in European Union and countries, uh, not just in the automotive sector, which is the, the easy guess, but uh, across the board, like financials, chemicals, and so engineering, and so on and so forth. Um, what is it? Should we expect this, uh, this uh, inflow of uh, capital, Japanese capital, to grow even farther? Uh, after this agreement? Oh, definitely. Um, and especially, again, thinking about the business environment, when we were conducting the sustainability impact assessment, uh, before the or during the during the negotiations, one of the main concerns of Japanese investors was actually again regulatory issues, the regulatory environment in the EU, um, uh, even uh, when it comes to mode four services in terms of the uh, the presence of investors, the easiness of linking together uh, people across uh, the two partners. Um, so these are all areas that are addressed by the by the agreement, and in that sense, uh, we can definitely see some some positive areas on on that front. So. Even in terms of um, not just movement of people for 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 business purposes, but of investors and their families, and these are even though it seems like a minor detail, is quite important for for the Japanese side, uh, and we're definitely going to see with that um, a lot of confidence building and in, in on the EU side as well. Uh, is there any any specific uh, um, uh, point about we know that uh, in, in bo- both in Japan and European Union? Uh, probably the most protected sectors or sector is the agriculture sector. So are they also opening up uh, uh, agriculture for trade, uh, particular investment, uh, uh, both in Japan and the European Union? So the European Union is, of course, produces a lot more <laughs> on the agricultural front than, uh, right. than Japan. So the direction is mostly um, EU exporting to Japan rather than uh, vice versa. And then uh, there is a huge market again for it uh, on the Japanese side. Uh, so I think that that's that's the major effect on the agricultural front. All right. Um, obviously, when it comes to Japanese investment into the European Union, uh, we are kind of, we are getting out today to the B word uh, to the to Brexit. Uh, the UK is supposed to remain a European Union country until uh, March two thousand nineteen. Uh, we don't know yet what will be the the, the post Brexit scenario, but um, definitely uh, unless there is a second referendum, which is still kind of a far away. Uh, alternative or like scenario right now uh, the, the the country will leave uh, the European Union and we know that Japanese the, the, the future of Japanese investment in the country uh, has, has been a major issue uh, since the very beginning uh, Japanese uh, again automakers car producers they employ a thousand of people Nissan uh, and others they employ thousands of people across the country uh, and there's always been a priority. Uh, Theresa May, Prime Minister, has always been very vocal since the very beginning in trying to uh, protect this investment, protect this interest, and keep this investment within the country. Uh, but what happens now with uh, uh, this uh, treaty? Obviously, this treaty puts the European Union in a much better position uh, in a scenario where 
the UK leaves totally the, the single market and the customs union um, and uh, we will have to renegotiate eventually uh, if they want their own deal uh, with a trade, free trade deal with uh, Japan. Talking about the potential impact on investment from the economic partnership agreement between the European Union and Japan, I spoke to uh, Mr. Ozuki Makiyama, the director of the European Center for International Political Economy, and this is what he told me. Uh, if you're in this current political uncertainty that we live under now, um, Japanese business traditionally shy away from uncertainty. Um, they prefer legal certainties and then sometimes even prefer regulatory complex market as long as the, the legal situation is certain. And so obviously this is going to have a major impact. What the free trade agreement now does between EU Japan and vis-a-vis the UK is that even if the UK would actually sign a trade agreement that is an exact replica of the agreement that Europe just signed with Japan itself, we will be looking at some relocation of manufacturing uh, resources and some plants out of the UK. I think that is inevitable. And that's just a simple economic fact. In the long term, it won't be possible to service the, uh, the single market just out of the UK unless you have a very, very soft uh, form of Brexit that at least contains a customs union. Uh, so it's not so much a question about what the EU-Japan agreement will lead to. Yes, it is true that uh, under an, a reasonably assumable uh, scenario of Brexit, you can now access the single market at same trading costs from Nagoya as you would do from Sunderland. That's, that's inevitable. Uh, but in fact, whether these investments stay in the UK or not, it's actually a question about what kind of Brexit you would have. So yeah, this is kind of obviously uh, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch, but it actually works this way. So in a, in a future scenario, in a, in a scenario of a hard Brexit, uh, probably it's going to be uh, cheaper to access the European Union market from from Japan than to from from Sutherland or from anywhere else in the in the Europe in the United Kingdom. So what, what's your take on it? Do you agree on the fact that, Council, uh, may there will be relocations? I mean, it's very, very tricky. Um, <laughs> of course, Brexit is, uh, of course, uh, Hosuk um, put a lot of focus on this, creates a lot of uncertainty. And I think that Japanese uh, businesses are very pragmatic. So they'll try not to leave on day one. Um, and of course, London and the UK will, will remain a hub in, in many areas. Uh, so that might um, lessen, or if you try to paint a more positive picture, of course, not everything will go uh, totally bad. But a recent study by, by the Center for Economic Performance at DLSE actually uh, tried to estimate how much of the effect of the UK uh, being as member of the EU created an effect on FDI. Um, and according to their estimations and their convergence with other studies, um, there will be a decrease of by almost 22% uh, in FDI, right. inward FDI in the UK. So that's a major, uh, a major thing to think about. Um, and of course, the Japanese government and the ambassador of Japan to the UK has also been, they've all been very vocal that this is not, this is not a great situation to be in. They've been, um, they've been sort of tempted to open businesses and more than a thousand um, operations in, in the UK. And now they're in a very, a very tricky spot of, of what to do. 
and I, I do agree with Hosuk that uh, to an extent Japanese uh, Japanese uh, companies might at some point be at a better better level. But there is also the other side that while there is a transition between sort of once the EU-Japan economic partnership agreement kicks in and Britain is out of the EU, then in the transition while the UK negotiates its own agreement with Japan, uh, then there will be a first mover advantage for a lot of the EU companies. And even though not in all areas, they're not direct competitors of EU companies in all areas, that would definitely create a first come, uh, first serve basis for for EU companies. Um, So another effect to think about in terms of the bilateral relations. You think that uh, Brexit was uh, an element that EU negotiators had in their mind when they, they you know, when negotiating this agreement and when, you know, eventually the timing of the signing of the agreement is actually placed well in their hands for, you know, if we look at where the Brexit negotiation uh, stand today and what is the, the agenda there. So do you think that there was also a Brexit element in the in the, in the mind of uh, European negotiators? Uh, not necessarily. I would say that as somebody who's worked for, for the European Commission as a consultant, as part of LSE Consulting, uh, what we've seen is that for them, we are still keeping the UK in all of our analysis. It's part of all of the modeling. It's still part of the EU. And it's very much will be like that until there is a deal or no deal uh, upon withdrawal. So I think that very much in the when it comes to the thinking of the European Commission, what is important, and then it was quite challenging when we were doing the SA, the most important things were the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the losses for the EU as a result of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was a much bigger deal. So the EU-Japan agreement was timed in a way to try to reduce some of the losses from trade diversion from TPP. And that was a much bigger sort of global (laughs) factor to to play in uh, in the calculations. For me, at least, that's... um, and that's something we saw with with the impact assessment that we did, that we tried to be quite innovative about it and not look at just EU-Japan, but look at EU-Japan in each of their respective hubs in terms of Japan's role in Asia-Pacific and then EU's role in the transatlantic relations and try to position this more broadly. So this is a very interesting point, and this kind of leads uh, perfectly to my last question. Obviously, uh, this, uh, this the signing of the treaty comes at a time, a very particular time, and the timing is very meaningful. So on the one hand, we are seeing the, the White House, so it's like, like you know pulling the brakes on uh, trade liberalization. Obviously, they pulled out of the the, the, the TPP. Um, they imposed that now there is this kind of unfolding uh, trade uh, dispute or trade war uh, with uh, with China, and they 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 raise tariffs on uh, uh, aluminium and other imports from uh, traditional trade partners, including European Union. Even though uh, today they seem to have uh, agreed to 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 kind of lift uh, to lift the tariffs and uh, keep talking about like possible future trade deal. Um, so this is happening in the U.S., but on the other hand, there are there is Japan and the European Union. They, they seem to be willing or committed to to fill in the void in a way uh, left by by the White House in continuing uh, uh, trade and investment liberalization across the globe. So how do you see this unfolding? Do you see uh, the European and Japan really uh, emerging as new leaders of uh, or new champions of? Uh, um, trade liberalization and globalization um, and trying again to counter this mounting protection wave of protectionism that we have experienced in the past couple of years? 
I mean, the partnership agreement is a key milestone in this. Um, and as you said, the timing couldn't be couldn't be perfect, couldn't be any better uh, when it comes to the global uh, <laughs> the global developments. Um, and I think that there is a lot of convergence in the thinking between EU and Japan, especially on some of the things that we mentioned in terms of even thinking about how to deal with regulatory issues, creating different bodies where they try to avoid future divergence, which is really important. And I think that there is also more and more coordination on even issues um, relating to China, but also discussing the reactions of of the US. Um, I think that the U, the U was very strategic and uh, in terms of thinking about the long-term developments in trade policy, which is actually a long-term game. It's not something that you see the results on day one necessarily. Right. Um, so in terms of the timing, EU signing an agreement with Japan before the US is in itself, um, I, I think a big achievement um, and would help with, uh, yeah, definitely getting the two parties to cooperate more in, in different areas and getting to be very unified in, in their positions. And the European Union has got already, is already now uh, going, uh, moving on to the, to, to the, to the next treaties. Uh, they got open negotiations with, uh, uh, with Australia and New Zealand. They got negotiation ongoing with, uh, we were discussing before with uh, the Mercosur bloc. Um, they got negotiation modernization of the treaty with uh, Chile and talks. We don't know where they will, uh, they, they, they are going. Uh, we, we don't know, you know, what's the final outcome, the final target of the talk with the US, but still, again, today's news, uh, uh, Mr. Trump and Jean-Claude Juncker, they met in Washington and they said they will continue to talk trade. Uh, so uh, there is uh, plenty, plenty of work for European negotiators, oh. negotiators at the moment. Yeah, completely. They're very, very busy. And especially I think that, of course, EU-Mercosur hopefully is just around the corner. The EU-Mexico was just New agreed Mexico. at the political yeah. level, which is really important. Again, thinking about the North American situation right. and how um, the EU has now a very good treaty with Canada and now has modernized its treaty or it's in the process of modernizing its treaty with Mexico, sort of of building this, to an extent, alliance on both sides of the US uh, in some ways. But also Australia and New Zealand are very key in the move towards Asia Pacific as well. This is, as you said, the very key, very key negotiating partners, developed economies, um, very similar thinking on regulatory issues. And uh, that, that will be really important in, in the negotiations. In terms of the US, of course, I'm very skeptical because um, the, the EU-Japan negotiations were during the time of the TTIP negotiations. And we actually witnessed firsthand the whole backlash towards the, the agreement with the US. Right. So any, any step uh, on the side of EU and the US to introduce a TTIP light at this stage might be perceived as um, doing the same sort of uh, liberalization and um, empowering corporates from from sort of the back of the back door rather than following uh, official channels. So here the process will be very important. I'm, maybe not that much in the US. I, I, I don't know the system too well, but in terms of how the EU process work, I think that uh, it will be very tough for the EU to promote a, an ambitious agreement or any agreement with the US without facing a lot of trouble in its in different constituencies across no the, the EU. Yeah. So that will be yeah major deal too. All right. Well, uh, uh, Elitsa Gardinsova, a researcher at the London School of Economics, thank you very much for being uh, with us today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can follow this episode and any other previous episode of the FDI podcast 
on our website fbiintelligence.com slash podcast and on uh, ACAS or iTunes. Stay tuned and until the next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.